You're listening to the One Two Three Show with me, Noreen Mir, on this Friday afternoon. Let's turn to our first topic and guest of today. In the next fifteen minutes or so, we're talking about colorectal cancers and why early screening and detection is really the best way to fight this cancer. And to talk to us a little bit more, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Sandy Pang, who's a specialist in gastroenterology and also hepatology from Telem Medical here in Hong Kong. Welcome to the program, Dr. Pang. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks, Noreen. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here. It's great to speak to you today. So I really practice how to say gastro gastroenterology. That's right. I got it there. It's basically yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> specializing in stomach and and liver function. So first of all, maybe let's talk about colorectal cancer. Uh, what is it exactly then? So. Um, colorectal cancer essentially is any cancer that arises from the inner lining of the large bowel. Um, if you look at the entire alimentary tract, it starts at the mouth. Then you've got the esophagus, which is the food pipe, the stomach, and then you've got several meters of small bowel. And then the large bowel starts uh, where the appendix is, which is in the lower right quadrant um, of the tummy. Um, and then you've got 90 meters of large bowel. So you've got the um, anatomically, you've got the ascending and the transfers and the descending colon. And then it, then the end part, the end 30 centimeters would be the sigmoid and the rectum. And then you get to the end of the, of the bowel, which is the anus. So the last 90 centimeters is what we define as the large intestine. And colorectal cancer is... Uh, any cancer that arises from the inner lining of this part of the of the bowel. Okay, and what are the symptoms of this? I mean, does it differ between the bowel and also the colon? I mean, what are some of the symptoms of colorectal cancer? Um, this this is. I mean, typically we say that um, the symptoms that you look for would be um, mucus in the stools. Um, blood in the stools, particularly blood that's mixed in the stools, but sometimes it's also separate from the stools, um, a change in the bowel habit. Um, and uh, But it also depends on where the cancer is. So you can imagine that if the cancer is quite close to the end of the bowel, then it makes it easier for you to detect things like mucus and blood. But if you've got cancer that, that arises from the beginning of the of the large bowel, so on the right-hand side, any kind of mucus and blood that that might come from the cancer might be all lost within the stools by the time it reaches the end. So on the right side, typically you might get symptoms like pain when the cancer becomes so big that it causes obstruction. Um, iron deficiency anemia is also quite a common presentation of advanced cancer on the right side. Uh, because it just loses minute bits of blood very slowly over time. Um, having said that, a lot of the symptoms that I just mentioned can be due to other other causes as well. So I see a lot of irritable bowel patients, for mm. example, who's got mucus in the stools. You know, blood in the stools can often be due to hemorrhoids or anal fissures, and these are all benign causes. So, you know, it it it. it 
these are the typical symptoms, but again, they can be they can represent other pathologies as well. Yeah, yeah. We are also streaming uh, this chat, this interview on the Facebook page, so our listeners can also join uh, Dr. Sandy Pang there. Our Facebook is Noreen Mir on RTHK Radio Three. Feel free to comment there if you have any thoughts uh, as well. Um, perhaps, I mean, some of these symptoms, like you said, can be other things too, like a sore tummy, bloatedness, um, blood in the stool may be quite serious, but like you said, it could be just hemorrhoids. So how can we know that it's something more sinister? It's it's hard sometimes. I mean, um, like I said, sometimes, you know, I've seen that certainly, you know, especially the elderly population, iron deficiency anemia may be the first presenting symptom. Um, I've seen cases where they've been told over six months that it's hemorrhoidal, they've bled a couple of times, and it turned out to actually be um, a colon cancer. So um, it's, you know, in short, it's, it's hard, particularly, you know, when you get these symptoms, and I'm talking about like pain and change in the bowel habits, sometimes the, the, the cancer is already at a very advanced stage. So I always say that I don't want to find a cancer um, to diagnose your cancer early. What I want to do is to bring that time in that you know that time frame to actually shift it back even earlier and detect it before it becomes cancerous and i think that's the most important part absolutely and we should also say that colorectal cancer um may may ne- not necessarily be preventable but early screening is really the key because it really yes. are those polyps that causes it. perhaps you can talk a little bit more about the polyps that we often hear being thrown around whenever we talk about colorectal cancer yeah. So um, most, if not all, colorectal cancers come from polyps. Now, a polyp is essentially um, a benign growth uh, that starts from the inner lining of the of the of the cells of the large bowel. Um, and you know, all polyps start as a small blip, and then they will grow. Not all polyps are destined to become colon cancer. Um, you know, within polyps, we've got different histology, different cell types. But in general, um, polyps take years to grow into colon cancers. We're talking about roughly, you know, seven to ten years time to grow into a colon cancer. So I think that um, the the key really is uh, not to find colon cancers early, but to actually detect these polyps before they become cancerous, remove them, um, and I think that would be the foundation of uh, of colon screening, colon yeah. cancer screening. Yeah. Well, earlier this month, I mean, Chadwick Boseman, the late actor uh, who brought Bat- Black Panther to life, sadly lost his battle to colon cancer. He was just uh, 43 years old. So it would, you know, it'd be fair to say that those polyps may have been present around about in, in his 30s. Now, Many of the screening that we see, those sort of colonoscopy, started about 50. Is that almost too late then? Um, there is certainly a push um, in recent years for that age to be brought down. So the, the, the World Health Organization recommends starting to screen at 50. The American Cancer Society recently has brought that age limit down to 45 because we are seeing an increasing trend of younger patients being diagnosed with this. Um, I, I, you know, we see a lot of this, so I personally would advocate starting to screen at 40. Um, and, and again, it also depends on other things like whether you've got a family history, whether it's a you know family history in a first degree of relatives, so we're talking about mother, father, brothers and sisters, at what age they're being 
uh, they, they were diagnosed. So if you've got a first degree relative that was who was diagnosed at a relatively young age, then we would actually uh, recommend screening 10 years younger than that particular age uh, for that patient. Yeah. Um, um, and, and obviously, if you know, if there are symptoms as well, then we might actually even investigate earlier. Yeah. I mean, w w how common is uh, colorectal cancer then? I hear it's, it's actually a really big killer here in Asia. Yeah. So in Hong Kong, it's the commonest cancer. Um, in 2017, it comprises 17% of all new cancers um, in Hong Kong. Um, when you standardize the age, um, we're talking about roughly 51 new cases per 100,000 um, people, uh, 51 males, let's say, yeah. per 100,000. And for females, it's slightly lower. It's about um, 32 per 100,000. Um, so the, 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 fem the male to female ratio is about 1.4 to 1. It's, a, it's slightly more common in males. Um, so, but it is very, um, it is, is it, it is the most common cancer in Hong Kong. And, and that kind of gave rise to the, um, the government initiative in the last couple of years of, um, subsidized colon cancer screening, uh, with colonoscopy. So that's been a really, really good, in, um, initiative from the government. Yeah. So it sounds like it's really common and, and who's at risk. You mentioned just now it's more common in men than, than in, in, in women. Um, who else mm -hmm. are sort of uh, at risk with, uh, colorectal cancer? Uh, so first of all, um, patients who have a positive family history in their first real relatives, like I said, um, and um, it, it's, but if you look at the, 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 all of the colon cancer cases, only a quarter of the patients have a positive family history. Three quarters of them actually are what we call sporadic, which means they don't have a family history. Okay, so family history is, is, is one of the things we look at. Um, and, and then other things that um, are associated with it would be obesity, um, diabetics, um, patients who, um, who smoke, who drink excessive alcohol, um, who have a very uh, high fat and low fiber diet. So some, you know, someone who eats a lot of fatty fried foods, a lot of processed foods, a lot of um, red meat, particularly red meat that's cooked, that's been cooked in high temperatures um, and, uh, and a lack of fiber as well, a lack of physical activity as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. So these are the risk factors uh, from a lifestyle point of view that we, that we look at in patients. And then obviously there will be other things like if they've got a background um, bowel disease like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, you know, these inflammatory bowel diseases, and also if they've had a history of radiation to the abdomen as well. So that also increases the risk for colon cancer. Yeah, I can see this is sort of a, a regular diet for, for many people who, who work um, because it's true, you know, people in Hong Kong are known to work really long hours and perhaps then, then they don't have time to cook dinner, so they just eat fast food. And a lot of times, even yeah. if you go to a cafeteria outside, um, they don't give you a lot of veggies. So like you said, it's a lot of processed food, but a less uh, a low fiber content. So when it comes to detection, um, how accurate is it? I mean, do, do, how, what's the process of the screening when you go for the colonoscopy? You detect for the polyps. How far do you go? Is it just the rectum or do you go all the way up to, to the colon? Uh, can you talk us through that process? 
Okay, so if you statistically, um, if you do a full colonoscopy, which means you look at the entire 90 centimeters of the large bowel, statistically it actually reduces the, um, the risk of colon cancer by 90%. Uh, that would be the most um, effective and the most accurate way of assessing um, the you know, presence of polyps. It's the most direct way of removing polyps. Um, so that would be the, uh, the first-line screening technique that um, gastroenterologists would advocate. Now, there, of course, there are other screening methods. So, for example, um, uh, a lot of uh, your audience would have heard of fecal occult blood test, yes. which is basically collecting a very small sample of your stool um, and detecting to see if there's any occult blood inside. Um, that's a, it's, it's definitely not as accurate as a colonoscopy, but it is easier for the patients. You know, there's no set, it's, it, it's, it's a very simple procedure. But uh, we say that one sample of the fecal occult blood test probably has about 30% accuracy. Um, so we normally advocate sending three samples. And then the caveat to that is that um, the occult blood detects cancer and it detects large polyps. Um, I always say that I, I want to, you know, I don't even want to get to that stage. You know, I'd want to uh, find the polyps before they start bleeding and, or before it becomes And nip malignant. it in the bud, so to speak, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, having said that from a, a screening point, from a population screening point of view, certainly a fecal occult blood test is very effective in detecting uh, colon cancers. Um, and, and advanced polyps. Um, there are other techniques. Uh, so we talked about full colonoscopy. There is an option to do a what we call a flexible sigmoidoscopy. So you're just looking at half the bowel. Um, if you look at the is that uh, just the rectum cancers, part then the lower the rectum part. and the, the rectum, the sigmoid and the uh, the descending colon. So about about Halfway. 40, 50 oh, okay. centimeters. So just the left side of the colon. Um, the, the basis for that is, is because more than 50% of colon cancers come from the left side. But we are increasingly seeing more and more cancers on the right side as well. So, uh, but with a flexible colonoscopy, you don't have to drink the full bowel prep. Um, you, you get an enema, you pass your stools, and then we can do it. Um, so it's a lot less involved than a full colonoscopy. With a full colonoscopy, you need to go on a special diet for three days, uh, and then you drink bowel prep the night before, and then you go to the toilet maybe eight to ten times. Oh, the clean um, prep. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah. Actually, no. There's another brand now oh. that uh, I, I want to mention any names, but you know that it, it, it's it's not that bad. Actually, to me. <laughs> I thought that the, 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 the clear fluid diet the day before was probably the toughest on me because I love my food. Yeah. I, I didn't think the bowel prep was too bad. Well, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about that because, like you said, people have to not fast for three days, but you have to not eat anything with fiber, essentially. Um, no, no rice, no bread. Maybe you can elaborate on that, Dr. Pang. So, um, so the, it. It, we, it's a, yeah, three days of bowel preparation, essentially. The first two days is a low-fiber diet. You can eat rice, white rice. Oh. So we're not talking about brown rice. White rice is okay. White pasta is okay. Um, just no no bran, no muesli, no wheat, um, no vegetables or fruit. But, you know, meat, chicken, um, uh, white bread you can still have. 
So that's not too bad. The day before, we asked patients to go on a clear fluid diet, so no residue. Um, and the reason for all this is because we don't want more and more stools to accumulate um, in the bowel, so it's just harder to, to evacuate, and then it affects the quality of the scope. So the clear fluid diet would be things like broth, jelly. Jelly's a good one, actually. Yeah, jelly is a good one. personal share. <laughs> jelly... Um, uh, Can you have you know, fruit uh, juice or nothing with any fiber? Yeah, so pulp-free juice, okay. Gatorade, Pocari, yeah. um, you know, electrolyte drinks, um, tea, you know, um, things like that. And then we ask patients to drink a bowel prep uh, the night before. So, uh, and then, you know, expect to go eight to ten times. Um, and then you fast from midnight after, uh, onwards. And then the next day, you know, usually we do it, you know, in the mornings sometimes in the afternoon um so uh yeah so that's that's probably i i feel that's probably the toughest part for the patient the bowel prep mm. and the fasting yeah uh, and, the, and the special diet yeah. um yeah Dr. the Peng, procedure you, itself is yeah you mentioned just now about the flexible colonoscopy and the full colonoscopy could there be a chance that you know if people if some of the patients opt for a flexible one but the polyps are actually on the upper part of it so then in in essence it goes undetected then so it's almost better yes. if you are going for it you may as well go for the full colonoscopy then um, the risks are certainly if you do the full colonoscopy of course the risks are going to be slightly higher um, but yes, from a from a detection point, from an efficacy point of view, um, definitely a full colonoscopy, the yield would be much would be more than a flexible sigmoidoscopy. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and it's not something, and it's something that you you have to have an a, a sedative, uh, an anesthetist is involved, or can you just go to a clinic for it? How, how does it work? Um, there are many places um, in Hong Kong where we can do these procedures. So we do them in hospitals, but we also do them in a lot of day surgeries as well. Um, I think when a doctor decides where to have it done, a lot of the time they often decide on the, the actual risk of the patient as well before they decide where they're going to have it. Um, so someone who's quite low risk, um, you know, who are young and quite healthy, um, it's, it's, um, it's, it's very okay to have it done at a, at a day surgery, for example. Um, there are two types of sedation that we, um, we perform the scopes with. So the first one we call intravenous sedation, which means giving them um, a sedative uh, that's a little bit like a sleeping pill that we take to go to sleep. Um, and uh, that isn't, a, it's not, it's not, is neither would you Is that strong enough? Um, a lot of the times it is actually. I mean, it's not a general, so you you might not be, a lot of my patients are completely asleep, but um, even there, if they're not completely 100% unconscious, um, you know, sometimes if you if you if you talk to them loudly, they might they might moan and kind of you know answer you and acknowledge you. But a lot, most of the time, the patient just you know they don't remember anything from the procedure because they're pretty much completely out yeah. um, from the procedure. Um, so that's the lighter style of anesthetic, and then you've got the monitored anesthetic care, which is the anesthetist comes and will give you a, another type of drug that puts you into a deeper sleep. Uh, and then you, this one, you're completely out. So it really depends. A lot of patients, you know, I've got patients who prefer the lighter type of sedation because they get very anxious about being completely 
completely asleep. And then I've got patients who prefer to have the anesthetist put them completely to sleep as well. So, um, yeah. but, um, you know, uh, most of the time, um, you know, the, the, the procedure runs very smoothly. And um, even with the intravenous sedation, um, you know, most of all of my patients, they don't really have any problems with it. Yeah. And in terms of um, if you find the polyp then during the colonoscopy, is the standard procedure to remove it sort of on the spot and to, to send it for a biopsy? Or, uh, yeah, what's the process of it? Yeah, if, it's, can, if it can be safely removed, then that we would try to do that because that is the whole point of the procedure. Um, obviously, if we come across a polyp that's exceptionally large, uh, that would um, bear, you know, excessive risk removing it on the spot, then we might biopsy it um, and pull out and, and then discuss with the patient about the increased risk of, of, of re- removing this. And then we might have to repeat the procedure. But when we can, and most of the time we can, uh, we will try to remove the polyp on the spot and send it for histology. And typically, how big are the polyps or what's considered as too large? Um, anything less than one centimeter, we would consider to be small. Um, so uh, typically, uh, the, particularly in the younger patients, um, the polyps would mostly be very small. Uh, in patients who come when they've already got um, uh, fecal occult blood test that's positive or in patients who's got symptoms, then I would expect a lot of the times to find larger polyps or even uh, more advanced lesions. Yeah. What if it's the case where they have symptoms, but when you do, when you perform the colonoscopy, you can't find any polyps? I mean, w- would you still send part of it, um, I don't know, part of their colon for a biopsy just to, just to make sure it's fine? Or how does it work? Um, if it's, it depends on what symptoms they have. So, um, we see a lot of patients with vague, like you said, um, IBS as well. Yeah. Like you said, with IBS. Bloating and nonspecific pain. And sometimes they have mucus in the stools. Um, so these are very nonspecific symptoms. And a lot of the times the colonoscopy is negative, or you might find a couple of, um, diminutive polyps, which really aren't responsible for the symptoms. Um, so, I mean, it's a good thing that they would have had the screening anyway, because IBS itself is a different um, entity to colon cancer. So just because you've got IBS doesn't mean you can't have colon cancer. Yeah. So it's a good thing to get that out of the way. And technically, before we say someone has irritable bowel, we really do need to make sure that there's nothing organically or structurally wrong um, in the tummy uh, be, uh, before we can say that it's a functional bowel disorder. Um, because there is quite an overlap in the symptoms between the two diseases. Yeah, I learned so much from you today, Dr. Peng. I'm sure our listeners found this uh, this chat uh, extraordinary, uh, informative. Remind-